This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities, episode 16. Today we will be discussing the psychological drama slash thriller Jacob's Ladder starring Tim Robbins. My name is Harry, and I'll be your host for today's show. And my name is Jeff, and I will co-host today's show. How are you doing today, Jeff? Doing great, man. Doing great. Looking forward to uh, digging into this one. And yeah, always look forward to our shows. So doing good. Good to know. I guess as per usual, as we have done with all the other podcasts, I believe last time you said you did not see this before, but do you have any memories or preconceptions of what this movie was or what it actually was about? A little bit incorrectly. I think that this movie was uh, misrepresented to me by other people or the media or whatever. I thought this was just sort of a a low-rent, bizarre horror movie. And uh, as you know, that's not really in my wheelhouse. So completely ignored this one over the years. Uh, I like Tim Robbins. I'm a fan of his. But just uh, my perception of it, yeah, didn't create any interest. So didn't seek it out. And yeah, went in fresh. Oh, that's good. Yeah, uh, similar. I think I was all, uh, in the same boat. I always thought that this was more of a horror movie in the past, and uh, it's always been kind of on my watch list because people keep talking about, oh, you know, you got to see Jacob's Ladder. Uh, you know, it's a movie that it's pretty good, and you should check it out. And it's got some layers there, so it'll be interesting to see if it lives up to the hype today. But you mentioned Tim Robbins. Uh, you like him? That was going to be my next question. So, what do you think of him as an actor? Is there any outstanding work that he's done that you particularly enjoy or anything about him that I haven't mentioned? Is there anything you want to delve into there? Well, okay. This is probably low hanging fruit, but you know, the Shawshank Redemption's a pretty good movie. I I really enjoy that one. And I thought he delivered a very good performance there. So, you know, obviously that, you know, he's a working guy. He's been in a lot of stuff, but that's, that's a standout for me off the top of my head. I thought he did a good job in that, in that film. You know, when you get a movie uh, like that from, uh, you know, like some, some Stephen King stuff, which is more dramatic, not uh, horror, tends to be a little bit overly sentimental, which, which that movie can be. And that can be a difficult place to put an actor in and still sort of sell the drama of it. And uh, that's, you know, one of my favorite aspects of that film is he's able to rein in some of the sentimentality there and some of the melodrama and sell a, a you know, pretty human story there. So, yeah, that's kind of my comment on, on Tim Robbins, uh, I always look forward to seeing him in stuff, and he's never set me wrong, that's for sure. That's interesting. Yeah, Tim Robbins has not been somebody I've watched in a lot of roles. I mean, Shawshank being the most notable of his works there. I remember him in his bit part in Top Gun. I don't know if you recall, like he's just one of those side guys. I think his yeah. name was, I think it was Merlin from the top of my head. That was his uh, wing name or code name or whatever it was. Uh, he was the guy who played Merlin and he was really young there. I think that was one of his earliest roles. And uh, I remember him in uh, Mystic River and I guess he's mm, right. that weirdo guy in War, to the, War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. But aside from that, I can't didn't really think of much off the top of my head. And the strange thing is, is when I went onto the internet for some research on Tim Robbins himself, he hasn't really done a lot of other major roles. I think he was in like Bull Durham in the 80s and, you know, some other kind of like lesser known films that maybe we can get into in the future. But there's nothing really in particular that stands out for me. And uh, I guess he's kind of gone on to do other things. He 
and he still acts. He just doesn't do a lot of work in the last decade. He's just kind of just been a movie every other year, and they're kind of like low-budget indie movies mm-hmm. or something like that. So now that we talk about it, he was the antagonist in um, uh, that film Arlington Road, yeah, which I came out. Bring that one up. Yeah, I, I just it just came in obviously because I'm a big Jeff Bridges fan. I want to give him a big old bear hug one of these days. Not the greatest movie, but good performances from the two leads there. You know, really interesting those two playing off each other for for that film and I, Tim Robbins was real good slow burn type of performance there like lots going on but you know obviously didn't know exactly what was going on with the character there and Jeff Bridges might have handed up a touch in that film but I'll forgive him so anything else yeah you want to talk about before or should I get into the synopsis here I'm looking forward to digging into this one so let's do it all right so I just wrote this out this afternoon so having that time to practice it so bear with me here so Meet Vietnam vet Jacob Singer. Born in Bowie, Arizona, 59 confirmed kills, two silver stars, four purple hearts, a distinguished service cross, and a medal of honor. He was trained to kill, period. And he can eat things and make a billy goat puke. And in the end, all he wanted was something to eat. Oh, oops, wrong movie character. (laughs) Except after actually getting something to eat at a drop zone in Vietnam, Jacob and his platoon soon find themselves starting not to feel well as the enemy approaches. As his platoon seizes up, goes crazy, and drops like flies, Jacob finds himself on the other side of a bayonet, stabbed by the enemy. Jacob awakes in the not-too-distant future in a New York subway. He lives with his girlfriend, Jesse, divorced from his wife, Sarah, and his three sons, one of whom died before the war. As he lives on after returning home from the war, Jacob starts seeing disturbing images and hallucinations. He's seeing faceless people, demonic images and even a monster fornicating with his girlfriend on the dance floor at a party. All the while, it seems, someone is following him, and others are trying to run him down with their car. Are these signs of PTSD, or are they for real? What makes matters worse is even his psychiatrist was killed, blown up in a car, it seems. As Jacob unravels and deals with these events, his body seems to be breaking down slowly, but he meets up with his platoon buddy, who was also seemed to be going through the same issues as Jacob. He sees demons and feels like he is going to hell. Then all of a sudden, his friend is killed, his car also blown up. At the funeral, his other platoon buddies share similar experiences. So they figure out, or guess, that the military did something to them, and they contact a lawyer who later backs out as their military's files show that they were never in combat and were actually discharged for psychological reasons. Something strange is happening to Jacob, and this is confirmed again as strangers attempt to kidnap and kill Jacob for talking too much. But Jacob manages to escape, but is injured. At the hospital, Jacob finds that this hospital is messed up, as this hospital is dilapidated and horrific images surround him. It's just another dream, maybe. Jacob finds himself later in a hospital room, and his friend and chiropractor Louis discharges him and gives him strange advice about hell, saying, The only part that burns in hell is part of you that won't let go of your life. You know, standard Hallmark get well soon card stuff. Jacob later is approached by a military chemist, Michael, who admits that him and his platoon were given an experimental drug to increase violence and aggressiveness, and that his platoon killed each other in the experiment. Throughout these events, Jacob goes back and forth between his event in Vietnam, to his life with Jesse, and to his former life with Sarah and his kids. Knowing about the experimental drug, he then wants to go back to his wife and the kid's home. While there, he remembers the advice Louis gave him, and he meets his dead son. His son leads him up the stairs, 
baked in warm sunlight, and we fade to see Jacob lying in a stretcher in a medical tent in Vietnam as he just passes away. The end. So, Jeff, that was very high-level plot summary here. Probably doesn't do the actual events in the movie complete justice, because a lot of details are left out. But just based on that, your initial thoughts. Yeah, you're, you're right. It doesn't do it justice. There is a lot more going on here and it is difficult to to summarize in a coherent way uh, what's going on so you know to kind of take the plot synopsis and and try to be honest with the movie uh, you, you just can't I, I don't think that you know if i'm just listening to that without having watched the movie i'm probably going oh, okay so it's a dude with ptsd and at the end he dies and it was all a dream yeah, no no thanks uh, i'm not interested but as we'll find out uh that's very high level. That's not a that's not a representation at all. All right. So how about I uh, hit you with some trivia before we uh, get into the nitty gritty as per usual? So this movie was released in 1990 by Trimark Pictures and uh, Carlico Entertainment. This movie was directed by Adrian Lin. He hasn't done a lot of movies um, in terms of direction. I think his most famous movie that he's ever directed is the well known thriller Fatal Attraction. So. Hmm. I think that's probably what he is most famous for, but he hasn't done that much work, which is interesting. But I thought I'd hit you with a question before I get into more trivia. I'm pretty sure you're aware, but if you're not, we'll just go over it. Do you know the actual meaning or the biblical meaning of Jacob's Ladder? Uh, I do not. No. Okay, so this is pretty much the giveaway of the movie itself. So this is more of a... Initial is a Hebrew name, and it really means ladder to heaven. So it's a... Hmm. Colloquial name, the connection between the earth and the heaven that the biblical patriarch uh, Jacob dreams about during his flight from his brother Esau. Uh, and this is in the book of Genesis. I mean, there's even in Judaism, again, the latter is signified. It's when Jewish people are in exile and they would suffer before the coming of the Messiah. So hmm. these are the kind of things I think that's really the, uh, you know, pardon my pun, the genesis of what the hidden meaning behind the story is for the people who don't know hmm. the terms of Jacob Ladder, at least the biblical terms. So I didn't even know until the end. I, I did some research, so I'm not well-versed in uh, biblical studies here. So for me, I didn't even know that either. So hmm. I'm with you, but thought that was interesting. In terms of the actors, there are many, many actors who actually went out of their way and sought out to play the main role. Al Pacino, Richard Gere, Dustin Hoffman being notable names there. Uh, Tim Robbins did eventually get, uh, was the one who got it. And the weird thing is, is I think Adrian Lin, wisely or unwisely, but sometimes it's a good thing. He went with a little bit more of an unknown. Uh, this was Tim Robbins' first main feature film as a lead. And he's done other things, small bits and comedies and stuff like that. So he, he's really proud of this film because he was able to stretch out into, in terms of dramatic material instead of just comedic material. And that proved to everybody around him that he was capable of uh, performing in movies such as this. You also get to see some earlier performances. I mean, you, early on, you see Ving Roms. That's one of his earlier roles. You see one of the 80s side-leading guys, Eric LaSalle, in this. I think he is most yeah. notably known from ER fame. But he's in here, too. This is one of his earlier roles. I found this kind of funny in the trivia is they actually hired a military advisor to give all the actors a five-day boot camp. Mm. For what? <laughs> I have no idea. Because <laughs> they really didn't utilize any... There was really no military action sequence in this movie that was standout. Mm -hmm. It's just a bunch of guys standing around and dropping like flies as we'll go over. 
the box office, uh, this made uh, 26 million US domestically. Unfortunately, I was unable to find what the budget is or what it did overseas, but I would assume the 26 million back in 1990 was still a fairly decent profit for a movie like this, especially if you didn't have to pay big bucks to a big name actor. This movie had mixed critical reception still to this day. So it'll be interesting to see where we fall in terms of this movie. And one of the main things that uh, this movie has influenced is the horror video game slash movie franchise, uh, Silent Hill. The creators of Silent Hill really looked at Jacob's Ladder as an influence in creating their franchise. How interesting. Yeah. And then I think M. Night Shyamalan or someone behind the creative team of The Sixth Sense also mentioned that this was a a minor influence for that movie as well. So... Hmm. Yeah, so that does it for the trivia. Any comments you got there? No, that's interesting um, <clears throat> to hear what it influenced. I, I'm not a, uh, I'm aware of the Silent Hill video games. I've never played them, but um, that's that's interesting that it's, it's had some influence in the sort of the thriller genre, as it should, I, I think. Okay, you want to just pop right into the movie? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so... As uh, mentioned in the synopsis, this uh, opens up in Vietnam, and we have Marine or a platoon brigade uh, waiting at what appears to be a temporary base or a drop zone. I guess they're waiting for the enemy either to launch an attack or for them to kind of come to them, and then they'll deal with them. And again, as I mentioned here, you see the noticeable B-list actors here, uh, Ving Roms, uh, Eric LaSalle. You see the enemy, or at least someone saying the enemy is coming. But then when that happens the, in the action, you think the action is going to start into this big action set piece. The Marine, all the platoon, the Marines, they start dropping. Some of them are having seizures. Others are going crazy while the attack happens. And, and here you get some violent images, like, you know, of uh, war and death. Uh, you see guys with limbs blown off, and such as that. But it's, I mean, it's no Saving Private Ryan type of visuals, but you still get a sense of what's happening. And you see other guys just, you know, you see in other movies just zone out, you know, through uh, stress like PTSD or or stress disorder, not post-traumatic. So you see that kind of stuff happen here. And the sequence ends with the main character, Jacob, who again, played by Tim Robbins. He gets stabbed with a bayonet, and then he immediately wakes up from his dream. So just before we move on, what did you think about this entire opening sequence here, Jeff? Was it effective? Did it set the tone of what this movie will be addressing? What are your initial thoughts here? I, Yeah, my initial thoughts were, I mean, I didn't really know what to make of what was going on. I mean, it had a uh, it had an ominousness to the opening there. I was, you know, sort of shades of apocalypse now. I think there's a shot with a helicopter there, but there isn't, there isn't really a lot of sound. It's just sort of this ominous overtone going on. So, uh, you know, I appreciate that. It was interesting because, you know, at first I'm like, shit, that's some bad weed that these guys were just smoking. And he wakes up. And I thought, okay, like, is this a dream? Like, how much of that? How much of that was real, and how much was a dream? So, mm-hmm. I think right off, I was actually I was pleasantly surprised. But again, because uh, you know, I didn't do any advance research on the film. I didn't read any synopses or even the Netflix three line blurb. I didn't read. I just started watching. So I had no idea what I was getting into. And yeah, it, it was it drew me in right away. I thought it was a it was a good scene. I actually had the thought right away when they realized that they're under attack. You can't really see who they're fighting, and I was like, it just occurred to me, I'm like, man, like, are they fighting other American soldiers? Are they fighting each other? It was just a thought that sort of popped in there. So, no, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, interesting thread. Maybe to pick up later. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't mind. I like the this first set piece here. I agree with you. You get the shots of the helicopters. I like some of the 
cinematography that was happening here. And I liked that you really didn't get a sense of seeing a big set piece. You just see all this crazy shit happening before the action starts. And then you just see the kind of like in between action that's happening. Guys who are injured, guys who are dead, hear gunshots, hear bombs going off. And then you see... uh Jacob getting stabbed there and then wakes up. So I thought it was a pretty effective opening for yeah. myself. So then Jacob, from this dream or vision, he wakes up and he's on a subway car in New York. Subway car is pretty empty. Interesting, you see signs of like hell, like this is hell and other kind of imagery. And he's trying to talk to people, talking to this lady. She won't talk back. Nothing's happening. The weird thing here is <laughs> he gets out uh, as he's exiting the train car. He sees a bum sleeping under a pile of clothes. And as he takes a little closer look at him, this guy's got a grotesque tail tucked away. Yeah. At least you hope it's a tail. <laughs> it's pretty good articulation if it wasn't a tail, that's for sure. Yeah, that kind of control. Uh, you should be, you know, in the porn industry raking up the money. You shouldn't be a bum. So. Hey, man, in Japan, that guy would be a hit. <laughs> or in Korea, if it's a tail. <laughs> That was weird, man. I, I don't know if we're, if you're going to keep going. I just, I yeah, wanted yeah, to ahead. stop Talk. and say like this whole, the whole subway scene or sequence, I really, really liked a lot. Like I saw the dude with the tail and I'm like, okay, shit just got bananas. And it's like three and a half minutes into this movie. So, uh, but I thought some of the imagery was great. Like you said, the sign, the signage there that I think it was a drugs or hell sign. Again, like we can pick up right, uh, right at the end of the film <clears throat> was neat, but I was like, ah, man, is he on some shit or going on it was super creepy man and the train that goes by he has to kind of dodge that train well i guess you haven't really got to that point but no, no, it's, uh, yeah it's right here like he gets um he almost gets hit by a train and as the train passes uh you see some weird you know i guess people looking at him it goes by so quickly but the guy the last guy in the in the last train car looks at him almost looks like a faceless man yeah um yeah so again here this opening sequence here is very strange and weird and interesting all right so let's move on so we cut to him going home and here you first meet his girlfriend jesse and you cut back quickly again to another scene the aftermath of him being stabbed and we'll see that throughout this movie is certain events in the movie here keep switching back and forth to his flashbacks like where he is at in vietnam after the stabbing event so here in Vietnam, he's asking again for help. And then again, with, as soon as he asks for help, because he sees some other uh, another platoon arrive or something like that, then we cut back before he is rescued. He's back at home again. And you're meant to think that he's dreaming. He starts looking through some old pics and you realize he had a previous relationship and a boy who seems to have died. And then after some scenes at work, we find out he has back problems. And we cut to him getting an adjustment with his chiropractor, Louie, who's played by Danny Aiello. And as his neck gets uh, the Cavill Superman on Zod treatment, he has, <laughs> he has another quick flashback of the Marines finding him in Nam, and they say he is still alive. And then he flashes right back to uh, Louis after his neck was adjusted, and he calls Louis an angel. So, what did you think of all of these scenes? Uh, you, know, you know, Jesse, his girlfriend, the boy he has a boy who seems to well, like these scenes. Uh, you know. Are they giving the movie away a little bit here at this stage? I mean, it's hard to say if they're giving the movie away. I mean, they, I guess, like in hindsight, yeah, they're definitely giving the movie away at this point. I think I had some intimations at what was going on. You know, when he's with the chiropractor, I'm like, that's one hell of a chiropractor. And with the, uh, with sort of the halo behind him and he says, you know, you're an angel. And I'm like, okay, well, this is, they're definitely giving this guy the guardian angel treatment. And I did start asking you know, some of the questions like, you know, like is he in hell right now or or maybe he's in the, you know, the 
he's in purgatory, you know, with, a, with sort of the flashing back and forth. I was like, OK, maybe he's still a nom and he's dreaming of his life at home, perhaps, you know, maybe it's PTSD. But there's certainly they're certainly laying they're laying on pretty thick with the biblical stuff, with the uh, uh, with the biblical names, the prophets, Jezebel. It's a little bit overt and it it led me in the direction of asking the questions like, where, you know, where is he right now? Because I was like, I'm not sure that he's actually at home, you know, dreaming. You know, I, I was thinking like, yeah, maybe, you know, especially with, you know, right after the subway, things are looking um, maybe a little obvious, but it wasn't it. Well, I don't think it was too much for me. I was I was intrigued and I was asking the questions, but I didn't have the answers yet. So I is it was oh, it's a tough line. That's a tough line. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it is a tough line. But yeah, I did initially, like the movie we'll get into it starts to throw some curveballs to re-ask the question what exactly is happening. But at this point here, it, it even on my first watch, I was already saying, okay, is this guy dead? Yeah. Like, you know, is he, as you said, he's in some kind of purgatory? Is he in heaven? And this is his consciousness fading away or something like that. Especially, as you said, with the subway and you see those kind of, you know, demonic or ghosts or whatever, they're faceless people. I was going, okay, what the fuck's happening? Is this already, am I already getting a hint of the conclusion? So mm -hmm. We could go back and touch on this a little later, but yeah, it was a bit, a bit on the nose. I think maybe they could have, in hindsight, once we get to the end of the film, we could talk about it. Maybe they could have played these scenes a little differently. I think maybe a director with a bit more of a skilled hand could have done something slightly different here, but... Anyways, let's move on. So after he leaves the chiropractor, he's walking home. And of course, the dumb fuck is in the alley and the car starts chasing him down and he manages to dodge out of the way. And again, as the car passes, you see another grotesque face in the car staring at him. And then he actually, from this point here, he goes to try and find his psychiatrist at a hospital where I'm assuming he's getting treated for PTSD. But the nurse there hasn't heard of him. And she's a charming bitch. <laughs> and the weird thing is, is she kneels down, her nurse hat falls off, and you see she has kind of some deformity horns or some kind of weird shit on her head. And it freaks him out, and he runs in to find his doctor, um, where he thinks his doctor is only to find some kind of other meeting happening in that room, group meeting, and this guy says, oh, his doctor had died earlier. So... At this point here, now you're seeing more images, again, like another grotesque face in the car. You get this nurse who seems to have some kind of real demonic deformity on her head. Um, can't find his doctor. He's died. What does this signify to you at this point? Again, is this right on the nose? Are, are you feeling that they're already, you know, giving away their cards? Well, I mean, I think there there's kind of two places here. In the, and I think that the movie's struggling to to kind of reconcile two things here. So when he's talking to the nurse and, and, she, and you know, she's just being awful to him, like she, she can't wait to just go on her fucking lunch break and she wants this loser to take a hike. Uh, and he's just trying to get help. So I thought it was a good scene and he's trying to like, you know, keep it, keep it cool. Right. Keep it wrapped up. And she's, she's just not helping. And she's, she's hasn't heard of him. She's like, who's this doctor? And we see the, the horns. So, uh, at that moment it was kind of working for me because either he's losing it because like, he's, you know, he's kind of freaking out at this moment. So he might be hallucinating. It might be a symptom of uh, his PTSD, uh, or, you know, it could just as easily be, you know, he's in, he's in hell or he's in purgatory. And, and this is just sort of part of the, the labyrinth that he's going to have to navigate. Um, so I was okay with that. Uh, but then as he, 
he runs through the hospital. He finds his doctor's old office and he talks to the doctor who's having some kind of group meeting in there. And that guy knows all about the previous doctor and he died in a uh, an explosion. Explosion. His car blew up or something. Yeah. Right. So if that so then I'm like, OK, well, the guy was just talking to the nurse and she doesn't remember that doctor. And she's said she's been there forever. She would have remembered a dude getting blown up in his car. So. So that's why I say like it's hard, like the movie's not doing a good job of like reconciling two things. I'm like, well, she didn't remember the the dude. So like, who's the nurse? Like, is he, did he hallucinate that whole interaction there or, or what? So. Yeah. I mean, those are really your two options. Is he just like losing it and hallucinating? And then part of the conversation is real. Part of the conversation isn't. Or as you said, is he in some kind of path or purgatory or where his brain is starting to lose these connections? Like, was that psychiatrist? This is like another, you know, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind kind of mm. scenario where things are kind of disappearing. His brain connections are lo- getting lost through the process of death, that transition to death. That's kind of what I thought initially. That mm. doctor was a piece, a packet in his brain and it's gone mm. because that mm-hmm. that connection got destroyed. That's part yeah. of the transition to death. That was my first instinct. So interesting. We don't know really for sure at this point because really it could be either of those two things, right? Yeah. So yeah. either a conspiracy or he's going crazy or he's dying. Right? Well, and that was the other thing. Like, yeah, is there a conspiracy going on here? Uh, but I, I was less compelled by the mystery here and more kind of confused by it. Yeah, I would agree. It's a little bit more. It's not, I think a little bit later, some seeds are planted where it gets... Uh, a bit more interesting. At this point, yeah. it's a bit more confusing. So now, at this point, he goes to a party, very 80s, with his girlfriend, Jesse. Things start to get a little bit more weird here. I can't remember, but I think he either sees a cow's or a goat's head in the fridge, all wrapped mm-hmm. up. He gets his palm read, and the, the palm reading lady said he's already dead. And then he sees some kind of demonic guy shaking his head violently. That was a very disturbing image. Uh, and then he sees his girlfriend, Jezzy, on the dance floor do the demonic doggy. And the demon, I guess, in the end, gave her the facial from hell, literally. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These are really disturbing images. And he freaks out, drops on the dance floor, and he awakes later at home. But just this sequence at the party here, there's a lot of interesting and cool, even though it's disturbing imagery here. I think this is a little bit more one of the, I enjoyed this sequence a little bit more in terms of the thriller, horror, violent imagery that we get to see in the movie. So I, I did enjoy this sequence here. I was uncomfortably aroused at the uh, the dance floor, uh, <laughs> demon doggy style. It was more disturbing to, to note my reaction to the scene, I think, than anything else. So um, no, to, to be serious, it, it was uh, it was interesting. I. I like the idea of the of the palm reader. It was a little on the nose, so I think that. But if they had kind of backed off of, you know, she's like, "Oh, it says you're already dead." She says it with a touch of humor, right? Like she's joking. Whereas, you know, as the audience, we're like, "Okay, uh, um, obviously, yeah, like that's the case. Like the, the this this motherfucker is dead." But if they had had a few more um, or changed some of the dialogue there, so it was a little like on the surface, it was a little it wasn't so suggestive of uh, the obvious. But, you know, later on, maybe being able to interpret, like if you're looking back and say, well, she said this and it turned out to be true as a fortune teller uh, would hope to be. uh, That might have helped that. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was neat. Like he opens the fridge. and Yeah, there's like a a cow's head in there, like wrapped up uh, all in plastic. That was man, that was really creepy. Mm-hmm. It was really creepy, and yeah, the, the 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 demon doing his girlfriend there. It 
Yeah, that got weird pretty quickly. And it was... I really was kind of even more disturbing than that. I was kind of disturbed. And you see that in more modern horror movies today. So it's interesting to see how far back this type of image goes where the guy is violently shaking his head so fast, right? Mm -hmm. Snapping and doing that. I don't recall a lot of horror movies doing that back in the late 80s, early 90s. You see that kind of more prevalent in today's type of horror movies. These kind of weird... I can't. I don't know which word. It's it's so fast and disjointed, mixed together. It's it's unnatural. For example, you could say the ring or the grudge or these weird things where you see people crawl and move in very horrific, unnatural means, and you see it here with this guy shaking his head very violently and snapping. So I, I enjoyed seeing that. It did creep me out a little bit. I did enjoy the way this sequence was filmed. So that's something that is a strong point of the movie for me is this sequence here. But uh, let's go, let's get back to the home. So when he wakes up from this, his girlfriend's pretty pissed off for Jesse for embarrassing him at the party like that. But uh, when he wakes up, all of a sudden he has a fever. It's like one of those 106, 107 fever. And she calls a doctor and she says, oh, you better put him in a bathtub full of ice. And he's getting buried and drowned here in ice water to bring the fever down. And he pulls through. But again, now here, we have another flashback, and then we cut away, I guess, to the past. Or is uh, it's the past or his present. We're not really sure. His other life with Sarah, his previous wife, and, their, and his son and his other kids. And you get kind of a small sequence with them. You get to learn he has a relationship with, I guess he has two or three boys, but one specific boy, the boy who did die, played by Macaulay Culkin here. You get to see him have a small scene here. And then he quickly cut back to the tub where he wakes up. So what do you think of all this? Finally, you get the introduction with that other life with his wife yeah. and kids. So what's yeah. your thoughts here? Well, right away, I was like, well, okay, hold the phone. What the fuck's going on? Like, that was uh, one of the curveballs, perhaps, that you would reference before. Because he just, he just wakes up in his old life, but it's the present. It's after Nam. Everybody, you know, he's still with his wife. His son's alive. But and I don't he's, know if it's after Nam. Well, no, but he, cause he, he says, like, oh, I dreamt about, uh, you know, I dreamt I was living with uh, so-and-so from from work, mm-hmm. you know, with Jesse from from work. Oh, it was right, really strange, right? right? Oh, yeah, you're right. It is, it is after Nam. You know, so he's in his uh, he's in his life, you know, pr- you know, presumably, you know, with his son alive after Nam. And then and he's woken up from this nightmare that he's that he's had. Mm-hmm. And at first I'm buying it. I'm like, you know, is he is he taking another sort of metaphorical step on this on the ladder? Like he was in Nam and then, you know, he took one step on the ladder and he, and this is sort of his life, which is better than Nam, but it's still kind of fucked up. His son is dead. He's living in the shitty apartment. His girlfriend's getting her ass tapped on the dance floor. and. You know, his brain's about to explode from a fever. And then, like, he takes another step and here he is back in his, or here he is in his uh, ideal uh, life. So I kind of saw this progression at this point from, you know, one step <clears throat> to to the next. And, and, uh, and you know, and, and this, again, like, kind of leads me as a viewer to, to, to think that, you know, it's all spiritual at this point, right? That, like, none of it's really happening in physical reality. It's happening you know, to him spiritually as he's passing it, you know, onto the next world, right? That's that's kind of what I'm thinking at this point. I partially agree. I mean, that's definitely one way to look at it. And I think that's the definitive way to look at it. But I think, as I mentioned, and you just said, it, this is the first curveball they kind of throw at you to say, okay, now what the fuck is happening? Here? Because is the real life with Jesse? Is the real life here? Is he dead? Is he, this is all hallucinations? What's going on? 
and it could be any number one of these things. So I think at this point is for me is where it starts to get slightly more interesting and then gets even slightly even more interesting because the next thing that happens is he gets a call from an army buddy of his from Nam and they go and meet and his friend says he's having issues. He's going to hell. He's seeing dens and imagery and hallucinations. And then when he goes outside with his friend, his friend gets in the car and it blows up, killing him and uh, like his friend. And then he gets to the funeral and he has these other army platoon buddies there and he finds out that they're now seeing things. At least some of them are. And they said, oh, they start saying, okay, well, what the fuck's going on? Did the army do this to us? Did something happen over in Vietnam? And they want to find out what's happening. So they go to a lawyer, start an investigation. And here we get the second appearance from Costanza. <laughs> on a podcast of rare antiquities. So, Georgie boy, Georgie boy, w- welcome back. And after the meeting, someone seems to be following Jacob right after their first meeting with the lawyer. So, now that this seed has been planted, what do you think? Well, okay. So at this point, I think that we're. I mean, again, it's another curveball, but it feels like okay, maybe this is reality, and you know, he's got everybody's hallucinating at this point. So. So yeah, did something actually happen to him? So it adds another piece. Like, is it this? Is it perhaps some drug or something the army did experimented on him? Is it the PTSD? Is it a spiritual experience? You know, so it's just another thing on top. And I thought, like, and that it was legitimate to me at that moment. Like, I didn't know what the answer was at this point. And I, I liked this. Uh, I liked this wrinkle when you know they're all at the uh, they're all at the wake. You know, the, the platoon, and they're all together, and they start giving each other looks. And and they realized they've all been having a similar experience. So, uh, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, when they when they go to the lawyer and stuff, things start to just it it, uh, it kind of bogged down for me a little bit there. Like I they got to go talk to a lawyer to. Uh, I guess that's just you know for some exposition so the audience can kind of get into what they're they're trying to sell. But yeah, they just really wanted to introduce the idea of a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think it slows the movie down a bit more. I think they could have cut out the all the lawyer scenes with Jason Alexander altogether because I think pretty much the next scene right after that, the guys, all, all his platoon buddies call him and say, okay, well, we're backing out. And their lawyer says, yeah, there's no case because your guy's backed out. But the interesting thing is, is lawyer says... Then when he did his initial investigation, that these guys were discharged after war uh, for psychological reasons after just war games in Thailand. They actually mm-hmm. went to combat. So now that one seed gets turned upside down. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting. And but then the funny thing is, <laughs> this is right after that he gets kidnapped. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you get like the one thing that's kind of weird about this movie is I find it so far. What I'm not happy with is the pacing and the editing because mm. they're dropping one thing, then they drop another thing, then they drop another thing, and then they turn it. They they don't give you a chance to kind of digest some of this information and to play off the strengths of some of these twists and turns that they're throwing in here. Because as soon as they say, oh, war games in Thailand, then he gets kidnapped right away. You don't have time to think about it. And so that tells would that tell the normal person who's watching this movie, oh, well, he is telling the truth. There wasn't war games in Thailand, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something's going on here. So, yeah. uh, so just to finish the sequence, he does manage to escape the suits that have kidnapped him and he gets injured. But wh- what did you think now? Is this becoming an interesting thriller or is this starting to become a bit of a convoluted mess here? Uh, it's a little convoluted, but I, uh, I mean, in my opinion, I think it's still pretty effective as a thriller. I see what you're saying. Like, it, it's not really giving you time to sort of digest the, the curveball because another one got thrown at your head, like right away, 
you know? Yeah. And, and you're right. It's like, okay, well, obviously something's going on because he just got kidnapped. But I, I, I went along with it. I, I mean, I'm looking one way and then all of a sudden something hit me if coming from the other direction. So I was off balance, you know, pretty much right, right, from the, right from the moment, you know, which we talked about sort of the first curveball where he wakes up in his old life. And I was, I've been off balance ever since. And, uh, and that, you know, that's working for me. You know, I'm like, oh shit, psychological thriller. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. And I, it's kind of the, that's kind of how I want to feel during a movie like this. I don't want to know what's going on. I don't want to know how to feel. I don't want too much time to examine what's going on because I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to figure out everything out and that's going to rob me of, uh, you know, the satisfaction of whatever the payoff's going to be at the end. Yeah. See, the weird thing here is, is then, so we'll get into this with the next sequence, but I still feel that they played their hand too early in the film. Mm-hmm. I never, even at this point, because we gave it away with the plot synopsis, I felt at this point, even all of this really wasn't what was the truth. Like, I, I, I just was sticking to my instinct and in what they portrayed initially because they hung on to that for a little too long that he was dead with all mm-hmm. of these images. And we're going to get to another one now. Because immediately after this, he's, as I said, they don't give you time to digest. It's just they keep whamming you at different points. But now, oh, from a conspiracy, oh, it's then now we're going back to is he dead because he's going to go to the hospital because he injures his back by escaping these thugs in the car, gets to a hospital, and he's going, this must be the hospital of the damned, because he's going more and more into the hospital, deeper and deeper into the depths, he sees more horrific imagery. Jesse's there, he sees weird stuff there, people tortured, body parts lying, blood lying around everywhere, and then it's cutting away again to his life with Sarah and the kids after that, and he seems alive and okay, but then it cuts back to him uh, with Louis rescuing him again. Yeah. In the hospital. So, again, I'm still feeling that this movie, the one bad thing about this movie is it's the pacing and the editing is not at strong point. Too much is happening too quickly. Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, as you said earlier, you know, perhaps a, a more skilled filmmaker is able to make some of these twists and turns work. I think, you know, what they're going for here from a editing and pacing perspective is to kind of just keep moving. Like you're running through the maze and turning the corner and turning the corner and turning the corner. And you don't know what's coming, what's around the next corner, but you're just running like flat out because what's behind you is so horrible. And I think that's kind of what they're going for with these sequences, you know, back to back. So no, they're not letting you digest anything that's happening right now. I think they're doing that on purpose, whether it works you know, obviously it's, it's working less for you, you know, for me, yeah, I'm okay with it, but I think I have some of the same concerns as you do. It's, uh, I remember, you know, as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, okay, I can kind of tell that, you know, we're not watching a filmmaker at the top of his game here. It, you know, the, it's kind of just going on the strength of atmosphere and, and a good performance. So, so yeah, I guess, I guess I have to agree, but it, it's, it's less of a problem for me. You know, it's not, it's not like booting me out of the movie or anything. This is one very long sequence with him in the hospital, him waking up with quick a quick scene, like a one-minute scene with him being in the hospital and Sarah and his kids visit. And then he and that, and he's asking the question, am I dead? And then he comes yeah. back to Louis rescuing him. And, and then Louis takes him and says, I, I, the funny thing is, is the one thing I laughed at is, saying, are you, is this the Middle Ages? As his broken leg is being hung up <laughs> yeah. from the thing, and he yanks him down, which would probably cause him a lot of pain. And then he says, oh, time for you to get an adjustment, as he's going to do his Hocus Pocus Cairo magic on him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. Because you're right. Like, Hocus Pocus Cairo magic is exactly what he what he did. And, you know, chiropractors all being witch doctors, as it is, 
it was an interesting choice for the movie to make this guy a chiropractor. Yeah, I think so. You know, like it, it is tantamount to making him a medicine man. Oh, and I agree with you. And the funny thing is here, he says, you should, we should all be burned at the stake. Or he's telling the doctors, you guys need to be burned at the stake. I'm yeah. a chiropractor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I wish they played that joke a bit more throughout the movie. I thought that would have been more interesting. Maybe so. But again, going back to this pacing and editing problem, the minute he rescues him from this hospital and discharges him. They cut back to him getting another adjustment. Uh, Jacob, he's at Louis's place or wherever that is. And now Louis, to me, here is where you definitely, in my opinion, 100% give the movie away. Is yeah. He tells him the story about someone talking about hell. And he then tells Jacob, if you are worried about dying, the only thing that burns in hell is the part of you that won't let go of your life. Something like that. It's just, yeah. you're going through this to free your soul. So if you're afraid and all that stuff, all you'll see is the devil tearing at your life. So in my opinion, here is you're definitively telling the audience what's happening. This revelation, this quote. Yeah, it certainly seems to be the case. Uh, there's no question there that, uh, you know, it's being pretty overt with what's happening. I did make a note and it's sort of a subtle callback because he, he talks about like what you said, the only thing that that burns in hell is stuff you can't let go of. So you know, like the you know the the memories and whatnot, like that's what gets burned away. And that calls back to a scene earlier in the film when he first, like right back at the beginning, when he first wakes up with Jezebel and they're in the and his ex wife had sent him the the photos and she takes them and she goes down to the basement and throws them in the incinerator. Right, the photos representing all of his memories and she's burning them away. So I thought it was kind of a cool callback without being too overt uh, about it. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was kind of neat. I mean, yeah, it's a little that's yeah, a neat callback. But again, when you say that, that gives it away completely. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally gets it away. Yeah. And, and this is where I'm starting to have a problem. Well, I'm already having a problem with this movie, but I'm, from this point on, you tipped your hand early in the in my opinion. Maybe not enough, but now you're tipping your hand three quarters of the, uh, maybe three, this is what, 75, 80% of the movie done. And now they're going to throw another curveball mm. because just as things um, seem clear, Jacob gets a call from the, a chemist, a military chemist. Who, a guy who's been following him, and he says he was part of a team creating mind-altering drugs to increase aggressiveness, aggressiveness and anger in the Marines, and his platoon was the experiment. And then what happened was is they started killing each other. That's what happened. Like, his platoon, they, that's where we go back to the beginning, and you're saying he didn't see an enemy, the enemy was themselves. And, and you're getting this scene, but I found all of this pointless and empty at this stage. Because I found it weird that they would throw it in here, but I'm wondering if it's just the last desperation of the filmmaker saying, oh, well, shit, where, where do we go from here? The movie's kind of <laughs> done, but I got to kind of keep the audience guessing somehow. Did you find this effective at all? I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I, I was, yeah. again, it was so a little bit too on the nose at the beginning. And then this Di Danny Aiello uh, Louis quote about, you know, letting go and all that stuff and his cutting back and forth between his wife and his kids saying, am I dead? Am I dead? Am I dead? It, to me, it's quite obvious. And then you throw this in here. It's a little late in the game to be throwing, to be throwing this guy in there. And I think, I think I know why they did it, but well, I guess there's, there's, there's kind of two things. So, you know, we're not quite jumping to the end yet, but, you know, after the movie fades to black, we get, you know, the public service message yeah. that flashes up on the screen which was a, a total mistake by the filmmakers to to do. Yeah, I think so um, too. You know, like this last bit here is is supposed. I don't know if it's supposed to be comment on 
the Vietnam War and and how the soldiers were treated. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, obviously, there's been rumors and stories about uh, different experiments on on soldiers who were in service in Vietnam. I don't know what's been proven and not. I mean, uh, you know, they they experimented with LSD and other psychedelics and things like that. No, no, all they wanted was something. <laughs> what's that? If movies have taught me anything, all all Vietnam vets wanted was something. Yeah, that's all they wanted: something to eat. <laughs> Well, the reason why they wanted something to eat, dude, is because they were all stoned out of their goddamn minds, right? They just had major munchies. Yeah, I guess so that's so. <laughs> that's why. So it fits all fits in together. I guess so. I guess so. Uh, so they so they kind of throw this in there, and that like, okay, oh, here's our Vietnam War commentary, and they lob in the Vietnam War commentary, and that was kind of all this was to me. But that being said, um, you know, they also try to throw in some allegory here, which I thought was partially interesting because they called the drug the ladder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you you talked about the, the biblical reference to Jacob's ladder where, you know, you think of a ladder going up. Right. And that is, that is kind of some of the uh, the messaging in the movie here is. Your ascendant, yeah, exactly, yeah, climbing, and there's and there's imagery, uh, also, and some more imagery that we'll get to in the conclusion here, where you're going up. But the, what was interesting is the drug was a ladder that goes down, mm-hmm. right down into like the primal core psyche of 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 man, like fear, paranoia, violence, anger, and I thought that was kind of a that was kind of a neat mirror, if you if you will. That he, you know, he was on this drug and he went down the ladder to the very, very bottom to hell, if you will. But inside, you know, like the just the worst part of of, of mankind and had to kind of ascend all the way from the very, very bottom, you know, up to the top. So, you know, from that perspective, I had a little bit to chew on there. I thought it was kind of neat. But uh, I think I have to agree with you that it's I mean, it's a pretty severe curveball at this point of the movie. I mean... Maybe they could have sold this earlier in the film at some point. I think so. I think instead of worrying about dealing with a lawyer, this yeah. guy could have come into the picture at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, exactly. And it would give you a little bit more things to think about mm-hmm. before. Because like, I think you, they tipped their hand too early at what the real situation was happening here. The funny thing is, is until that public service announcement at the end, where they're talking about that drug BZ and the Pentagon denied using it on the on the troops and all that stuff at the end of the movie, which was a mistake. Anyways, I was wondering if initially that was this even just part of his path, like is is um it didn't really happen to him. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's just something like he had to descend, as you talked about, when Michael, who's that chemist, talks to him and says, there was this drug and you're going down into the depths. Yeah. I thought maybe because of the sins as a, as a soldier and him killing, maybe he was going to hell because all of this is horrific imagery. Nothing is nice here. So I thought uh, that was a possibility, even though I didn't think that that was really what was happening. But I thought maybe that's what they were trying to say, that this was really him descending into hell, not ascending into heaven. That's what the latter meant. But then with that public service announcement at the end, this is their statement on what happened during the war, right? Their commentary. So they kind of threw that possibility out the window that what I was just talking. Yeah. um, It calls back to that image on the subway. When he first wakes up, he sees that sign that says drugs are hell. Mm -hmm. And and we have both right now. We have drugs. He's possibly in hell or they're trying to have their cake and eat it too here at this point. And, and that's unfortunately a a mistake in a movie. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You gotta pick one. 
Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think much else happens here after his discussion with the chemist in that alley and in that back alley and his realization about this drug being used and all that stuff. Because I think he, at this point, with all this information, he just goes to, gets into a cab, wants to go to his family's house, like the, with his wife, Sarah, the way, where they were at with the kids. He arrives there to find nobody there and he contemplates what's happening. He goes through his stuff and then he sits down. He's all alone and it's a dark house. And then he remembers the advice that we gave saying he has to be prepared to let go and not be afraid to die. And the minute that happens, uh, becomes daylight around him. And all of a sudden, Macaulay Culkin, his dead son, is sitting at the bottom of the stairwell. And they go give, have a small conversation. They give each other a hug. The son says it's okay. And he takes him upstairs. And as it goes upstairs, it kind of fades away into warm sunlight. The cliche warm sunlight of them going into the heavens. It then cuts back to him being in Nam, showing him finally passing away in at peace. Am I correct? That's pretty much the next step after he yeah. finds out this information. Yeah, I believe that is correct. Yeah, and, that, and that's the end of the movie. So how do you think this, this movie resolved itself there after that? Well, I think it resolved itself... I don't know if I would say, you know, satisfactorily, but, you know, honestly, in in the sense that, you know, he's been dead the whole or dying the whole time. And, you know, depending on how you want to interpret what's happening, I guess the the movie kind of leaves it open to interpretation. Like uh, what you what you said, you know, these are, are parts of his brain just shutting down and this is him just dying and fading away into oblivion. Or is this his journey from, you know, the depths of, you know, the worst parts of humanity and, and what he has to go through his trials in order to get to heaven. I mean, that's another interpretation. Is it just sort of a combination hallucin- hallucination from these bad drugs that they were given? You know, I don't know. I guess, you know, the movie kind of leaves it up, up to you. Yeah, up to the viewer. Um, but I find and I'm okay with that. Like, yeah, I find it kind of weird that, like, if, you know, if he was kind of in that transition from life to death, there was a sequence in his passing saying, okay, just hold on. Before you die, we want to tell you that you were exposed to this drug. Yeah. It's part of yeah. your trial. So when I'm passing to the afterlife, am I going to get like the, am I going to be explained like the secret recipe of KFC or something like that? Like, uh, yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you are. You get to learn one secret that nobody knows. It's yeah. like, okay, before you walk up, before it's St. Peter at the pearly gates, it's like before you cross over, I'm just going to let you know that that joint that you smoked in eighth grade had a little bit of weird shit in it. Okay, you're cool with that? Okay, come on in. That's all good. Yeah, it was... Uh, yeah. I, I didn't enjoy this last piece here, this last yeah. curveball with the drugging and the army experiment and stuff like that. I know they introduced it in the first sequence of the movie with all those guys going crazy and seizing up and stuff like that, but there's something about this movie that just doesn't sit right with... Um, yeah, that, that particular that. piece is... It's not necessary. Yeah. You know, it throws an unnecessary wrinkle into it and it, it muddies the waters, I, I guess. You know, I mean, I'm already trying to wrestle with what's going on. Throwing that on top of it doesn't really help. It didn't need it. You know, I, I know they tried to do some stuff with uh, with the imagery, but yeah, no, no. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of does it in terms of the main plot. So, Jeff, overall, now that we've gone through the movie, what worked for you, what didn't? I, you know, for for the most part, you know, if I think of the strengths of the movie, uh, great 
work with building the atmosphere. Again, I've talked about how the unsettling imagery at the start and and throughout. You know, we talked about the the party scene there, the the subway scene. Actually, there was another cool image in the in the subway. You know, he's down underground and he's trying to climb the stairs, but the the entrances are all fenced off. He can't get out, right? Yeah. Which yeah. you know, he, he's not far enough along in his journey. He's trapped underneath. He's he's down in hell still. He can't get out. I thought it was pretty cool. So there's items like this that that really worked well for me. I mean, I was I was drawn into the mystery. Uh, for a psychological thriller, I felt it was, I don't know, I felt it was a little bit ahead of its time. I mean, I, I you know, I'm trying to think of other psychological thrillers prior to this, you know, if you go back to the eighties and stuff and, you know, maybe you've got some David Lynch stuff that you could refer to. I don't even know that David Lynch knows what the hell's going on in his movies. So this, you know, you could still kind of like, you, you can make logical sense. You don't need to make too many leaps to, to sort of interpret this movie in a satisfactory manner, which I kind of appreciate some, a lot of psychological thrillers uh, go way too far out there. Like I've mentioned, David Lynch, like you don't know what's going on in his stuff. You can't like, you can't interpret it because the stuff that's on screen doesn't give you enough. So you really got to go out there and he does that on purpose. And I don't like it. Others and there are other psychological thrillers that don't do enough. They just explain everything to you, you know, straight up. So there is no room for interpretation. And I thought this strikes this, that's one of the main strengths here is I thought it strike it struck the right balance between me interpreting, you know, or being left with room to interpret, but still there's enough in the film that it sort of works narratively as a as a story. And if you just take it on the on the surface, it still works. So so that worked for me. You know, Tim Robbins, as we talked about, I thought he did a real solid job here. I mean, he's not, uh, you know, nothing groundbreaking here, but I thought he was a real good fit for the character. Just sort of a regular kind of guy who got drafted and had some bad shit happen to him. And I, and I got, I like the everyman kind of quality that we got from him. I thought he was good. You know, overall the performances, I liked his girlfriend. I don't know the uh, actor's name, but Jesse was, uh, was also pretty good. So yeah, I, I, it caught me, it caught me sideways a few times. Uh, definitely has got problems, but you know, there's some of the stuff that didn't work. I think we talked about like the thrown in this, the stuff with the drug didn't, doesn't, it just doesn't, it's not necessary. If they had thrown that in earlier, maybe they could have woven that into the fabric of what's happening psychologically with this guy as a, maybe an earlier setup to why he's hallucinating as a, another explanation. Maybe it's not PTSD. Maybe he's having, you know, for lack of a better term, acid flashbacks, but uh, you know, it's kind of kicked to the end a little bit. Um, so, you know, so that, so that, that part didn't really work for me. Uh, what, what about you? It's interesting. I, I also, I mean, I think the acting was, I'll start with the acting was fairly solid. I mean, I agree with you in the sense that Tim Robbins being the everyman, if you put a more known actor at the time, such as Pacino or Dustin Hoffman, um, who were probably in their prime at that point, uh, they would have kind of led this movie in a, under a different path. Maybe it would have worked better, maybe not. But I thought Tim Robbins did a good job because he did play the everyman, as you mentioned. I thought the acting from the other leads, uh, Danny Aiello, the actress who played Jesse, I think her name is Elizabeth Pena or Pena. She's actually just died recently of cirrhosis of the liver. So, oh, shit. Uh, so maybe this movie kind of haunted her in different ways. But uh, yeah, that's um, too bad for that. But yeah, it's, um did an okay job uh, in terms of the acting. The story, though, I think they just tipped their hand too much uh, early on. When you say it's um, ahead of its time, I partially agree. Even though I can't think of other movies off the top of my head, I'm sure there are other movies about the transition from life to death out there. It's just, I just don't know of them. I'd be surprised if this was one of the first to do that. In, in this fashion, talking about, like, they're not telling the audience what's happening until the end. Uh, 
Uh, I don't think that this would be the first, but it's probably one of the earlier ones because this movie is pretty well known. A lot of people do recommend this movie, but I found that they just, as we kept, I kept saying is they've just tipped their hand too early. I just felt that if they played it a bit more coy throughout the movie, they threw in this drug thing in the middle of the movie with the, instead of the lawyer, I think it would have kept me guessing a bit more because I kind of solved the movie too early on for me to have any enjoyment afterwards or have any surprise. I also felt that the editing and the pacing and the directing, as we talked about, um, the more deft hand or skilled hand, the director could have done a better job here. And I was slightly disappointed in the fact that this was the movie that we got. I thought we'd have a slightly more different take on what Jacob's Ladder was. Me not Mm. knowing what the biblical reference of Jacob's Ladder is. I didn't find this really to be too much of a thriller. I felt this was kind of just whole hum. Like when I, I see my wife watching shitty TV movies, this is this is it. Like <laughs> he's transitioning from fucking life to death. He's going through certain stages and meeting his fucking parents and talking to other people and dealing with demons and shit like that. This is a weekly lifetime movie of the week award. It, it feels like that when I watch this movie now. Hmm. Uh, it, it just, I get this. It's not, it has nothing to do with budget. I think that um, some of the more disturbing images are there are some certain sequences that are done very, very well. Like you talk about the party scene, you talk about the hospital scene, you talk about the subway scene. These are excellent sequences, but three sequences in a movie does not a movie make. So I, I'm just left wanting more out of this movie and I didn't get it. Are you disappointed with what's actually like, are you disappointed with the fact that it is merely him transitioning from life into death from earth to heaven with some purgatory in between? Like, is it that, is that what's disappointing? You wanted it to be a larger concept than that? I think so. Maybe I had some preconceived notions of what Jacob's Ladder was, to be honest, and, and it ended up just being something as simple of a concept as this, even though I'm sure in, in the grand scheme of life in the cosmic universe, that's not simple. <laughs> we cannot answer that. So it's right. a fascinating discussion topic, but I don't find what was presented to me all that fascinating because, as I said, I pretty much guessed it right off the bat. Yeah. And then they kept reinforcing it, even though they kind of added a couple of twists and turns, they kept reinforcing it immediately. Oh, you're dead. Yeah. They, well, they do because they tell, I mean, how many times does he get told straight up, you're dead? Yeah. He like does. he gets told that straight up at least three, and, four times. And the yeah. funny thing is, every time when he's with his girlfriend, Jesse, there's always something off in terms of hell. You get those hellish images. You get that party scene. Yeah. You get him dying and close to death in the bathtub. Then when he's recuperating, we didn't talk about this. There's a scene where he goes, are you okay? Like she goes up to him, are you okay? Because he's just kind of spacing out in yeah. his apartment and her eyes look demonic at that point. He's having yeah. a little visual. And then uh, she's at the hospital, that demon hospital. And she's one of the doctors there. And then another doctor says, no, you're dead. So every time I see stuff with her, I'm saying he's in hell or he's about to die. He's going through that process. Well, I and I kind of wondered because you're you're, you're absolutely right, and I, and I you know, I, she seems like she's kind of a high maintenance girlfriend too. You know, she's hot, but she needs some fucking maintenance. Like, you know, you're 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 taking a full mechanics kit into the bedroom with you with that chick. Like, yeah, the minute you she your... burned the pictures, even though I get the reference that they were doing the circling around later. Yeah, it's like okay, yeah, what a bitch! Oh god, she's probably oh yeah, she's probably good in bed, but that's about it. Yeah, exactly. Like you need a socket wrench, some needle nose pliers, a blowtorch. Like you need some fucking serious tools to deal with that. I wondered why, why her? 
You know, like it was a pretty real life that he was imagining for himself with this particular woman. And I had, I was, there was no reason why it was her. She was just her. She was there, you know, because it was, you know, it's kind of a specific dream for him to have. Uh, but then as, uh, what is it, Louis said, demons are tearing away at his life. So the high maintenance demonic girlfriend is there because he's not letting go of his actual wife. Well, yeah, that's, that's, and that's, he's replaced that she is the replacement of that, making his life miserable until he's ready to accept death. Yeah, that's true. You know, that makes sense, except some of her behavior betrays that, you know, when he's losing his mind, he's about to die from the fever. She's frantic uh, trying to save him, right? In a genuine, not in a selfish way, but what seemed to be a genuine way, which is interesting because if he's dreaming and he's unconscious, it's always kind of a, it's a tough point for me when, when we're seeing things that aren't taking place in reality, right? This, this is a dream for him, right? So, but he's, he's unconscious basically in the bathtub and she goes out into the hall and she's knocking on doors trying to get ice this isn't something that he sees happen. So no. So we're led to believe it. But the problem here is, is the consistency. I think there's just a right. lack of consistency from the director. Exactly. Um, painting these characters. But again, maybe he didn't want to tip that hand also. You're exactly right. They don't want to tip the hand, but they're not being honest to us because like, this is a, this is something that's not actually happening. So we shouldn't be seeing it unless he's seeing it. You know, it's a problem with, now, they kind of do the same thing in, in Total Recall. If they want us to believe that he's dreaming the whole thing, he shouldn't be able to see shit that's happening when he's not on screen because it's all memories, right? So this is this is sort of in the same vein as that. We shouldn't be able to see stuff that's going on if he's not there. You know, there's a sort of another scene when um, all of his army buddies are on the other end of the phone, like they're all kind of in a group. And like, because he's called one of them, like, why are you backing out? And they're all on the other end of the line. And we see that as the audience, but... He's not like they're not actually there. It's all a fucking dream. So he can't see that either. We shouldn't be seeing that. Right. Hmm. Does that do you know what I mean? Yeah, so you're right. It's yeah. it's an inconsistency with with the film. And when you're doing a psychological thriller and you you make missteps like this, it does. It, it hurts the whole thing as it bursts the bubble. Yeah. You can't burst the bubble when you're doing a psychological thriller. No, for sure. Do you have anything else to talk about or do you want to wrap up your your final thoughts here? No, I think. Uh, no, I think I got in everything I need to get in. All right. No. Excellent. So, Jeff, do you recommend Jacob's Ladder? What are your final thoughts here? Uh, I'm going to give it a moderate recommendation. It's not a. It's definitely not a strong recommendation. Um, so, but it's, it's not, not rare antiquity, or is it? it okay. Let me I'll, let me go through <laughs> the thoughts here. So, I'll give it a moderate recommendation, and the reason I'll give it a moderate recommendation is. You know, there's some cool. Sh there's some cool shit going on here. Some of the imagery is really good. I think that for the mis even for all the mistakes it makes it does a lot really well when if we take a look at this at the genre of the psychological thriller i was uh i, I think it, it creates the right atmosphere uh, i didn't have a i didn't have a problem with the pacing as you did and even though it kind of drops the ball I, I think it's still a good example of a psychological thriller if not a great example is it a rare antiquity uh, i don't know i mean it it's I have trouble thinking of like a movie that it's like, like it's, it's doing some different stuff here, but I don't know. Honestly, I didn't, I did not have my mind made up before cause I couldn't quite, you know, I was kind of waffling, but I think it's probably not quite a rare antiquity, but it's a kind of a neat watch. So moderate recommendation, not a rare antiquity. 
I mostly agree with that. Although I think I'm going to go on to the slight underside of where that you know faint line of recommend not recommend is. It is not a rare antiquity by any means, but I think I'm going to go with a almost a recommend, but not quite there, just simply because the movie is not bad by any means. It's just not strong enough for me to say, watch this, because I think other movies have done this kind of trickery better and this kind of psychological drama better. You know, you go and talk about other horror movies or thrillers, you know, Sixth Sense being one that's just off the top of my head. That's something I think that was done a lot better at the time, um, even though I think that's slightly an overrated movie, but I'm just talking about in comparison. There are some neat things that are done here. The acting is not bad, but the acting is not superb. It's just, it's right where it kind of needs to be. It's passable. It's serviceable. The direction is okay. There are very, some, like two or three really strong sequences in this movie that made me pique my interest and made me go, oh, fuck yeah, this is going to be good. Mm -hmm. And then it just immediately lets me down right after. We talked about the pacing of this movie. I don't have time to digest anything or think about anything or let anything sink in because the minute something happens, it's negated 20 seconds later, or it's something else on top of that 20 seconds later. And I don't have time to enjoy that one piece. What does that mean? And then it tipped its hand so early and it kept reinforcing the fact that he was dead. Any other twist saying that he, no, no, wait a minute. It might be something else. Oh yeah, I'm wait. Okay, let me sit with that. But 20 seconds later, no, you're dead again. So I really didn't have time to enjoy any of these other nuances or layers they kept adding on to the movie. And to me, it just felt like, uh, you know, you know, Showtime Network movie of the week kind of movie. That's what it ended up being, unfortunately for me. Maybe give it a watch, but I can't quite put it into the recommend column here this time. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I was really looking forward to this movie. I kept hearing good things about it. I just, unfortunately, it just didn't, it didn't pan out for me. It'd be interesting to see what uh, this movie would be like in the hands of a slightly more seasoned filmmaker. You know, like a similar, like another pass on the script and... You know, a, a director who just has a, a little more deft hand. Uh, you know, the, I think there's probably uh, some good stuff here that could that could really be could be serviced better by a little bit more skill. Yeah, it's too bad. So uh, that does it for today's episode, Jeff. Unless you have anything else to add about Jacob's Ladder. You know, you talked about uh, the Sixth Sense, and, and I agree. I think it's overrated, but it does a pretty good job of not tipping its hand. If you go back and watch it after the first, like you don't, most people don't get it on the first watch. Like you don't see the twists coming. But if you go back and watch it, knowing that that's what happens, it's all right there. Right. You know, that's the sign of like of, of a better the thriller. Yeah. yeah. Of a better filmmaker, better script, knowing yeah. a, a better script and like knowing exactly how to play it so that you, it's not obvious until at the end and you're like, oh, of course. And then you go back, watch it again. And you're like, oh, it's right here in front of me. I mean, that's really tough to do. So credit to M. Night Shyamalan, and really the only credit you can give the guy, unfortunately, you know, that's really, that is tough to do. So I, you know, I can kind of cut these guys a break on this film because it's almost impossible to do it right. But yeah, I mean, with, it would be neat to see if they, in, just in the hands of somebody who had a little bit more capability to, to pull this off. Yeah, yeah. No, I think so. Yeah, so that does it today for today's episode, episode 16, Jacob's Ladder. Jeff, care to enlighten anybody who dares listen to us? <laughs> what, what is next on our plates? It is the 
greatest gladiator match in the history of the planets. We've got up next our foray back into the mainstream Batman v Superman X Wonder Woman Sunrise of Justice or whatever the fuck the movie's called on our next episode. It could be our longest one yet. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Uh, I take it you've seen it. Yeah, I've, t- I've seen it. You've seen it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know I'm ready to go whenever you are on that one. So that, yeah. that'll uh, be an interesting discussion. One way or another, it'll be a good episode for us to to do. Yeah. For the zero people who actually listen to this, aside from ourselves, I recommend listening to episode five, where we delved into the Superman franchise and also discussed Man of Steel and our hopes and fears of uh, Batman v Superman. So uh, take a listen to that before you uh, listen to the next episode, if you dare. And Jeff, I guess I'll see you on the other side. Yeah. (laughs) All right, man. We'll catch you on the flip side. And thanks for doing this. All right. Cheers. You have a good night. 